Father in heaven, we come before you now humbly and gratefully that you are present with us in both light and darkness, in victory and in defeat, when we're in despair and when we're full of hope. We thank you that you are a God who hears and answers our prayers. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your example in the garden of crying out in your anguish. And we now cry out together as your children for the situation in Ukraine. We cry out for you to stop wars. You make wars cease, your word tells us, to the ends of the earth. So we cry out to you, Lord, and ask you to bring an end to this war. Bring an end to the suffering and the, the murder of innocents. We pray an end to the aggression of Russian armies. and We pray an end to refugee crisis. Specifically for our brothers and sisters in Stephen's house, home in Ukraine, we pray, Lord, your protection of them as they seek to evacuate that home and seek shelter across the, the, the border. Lord, protect them, provide transportation, safe passage. Lord, also protect that home which has been built by the many prayers and donations of, of your children across the world that when the war is over, they might return. For those in our own community, in our own church family, who are hurting, who are struggling, or full of fear and anxiety, who are suffering, we think of our dear sister Jenny Caterer, her precious baby Kylie Joy, and her husband Matt. Watch over them, Lord. Bring healing to her body. Thank you for her example of, of hope and faith and light in the midst of suffering. Thank you that you're present with us as we lift our voices in song, as we open your word that you speak to us. Forgive us, Lord, for listening to the wrong voices in our culture, voices of dissent and division and anger and hostility. Tune the, the antenna of our hearts to your voice, Lord Jesus, that we might hear you in the truth of your gospel and the clarity of your word above all the competing voices. We thank you that, Jesus, you knelt in the garden and prayed that if it was possible, this cup might pass from you, yet not your will, but the Father's will. You surrender to his will. Teach us, Lord, to do the same, to surrender to your will, even when we don't feel like it, even, Lord, when we don't understand it, because we know the safest place on earth for us to be is close to you and doing your will. Thank you. We give you great praise in your name, Jesus' name. Amen.
As Kent had mentioned, uh, baptism's coming up this Easter, which I'm excited about. I remember the days we used to baptize right back there in the baptism, uh, baptism, which in addition to the fact that it leaks terribly, those stairs are a test of faith, just getting up there. And so it would be nice to have baptisms right down here where it's safe and on display. I remember years ago baptizing someone in that, that tank behind me, and he was about six foot six. And I said, now listen, you need to bend your knees when you go down because there's not room. And he didn't. He went stiff as a board. And his head hit the back of the tank, which wasn't hard enough to hurt him, but it echoed in this room. Thunk. Like, and all of you went, ooh. <laughs> so, perhaps God is moving in your heart that you might take that step and be baptized safely and uh, in honor of, your, of God's grace in your life right here on Easter Sunday morning. We've just got four weeks left in our series, Following the King, which we began way back in the fall, uh, looking at the Gospel of Mark. Go- Mark's Gospel, as some of you know, is, is the uh, first, the earliest written. It's the briefest. Uh, it's probably the source material for uh, Luke and, and Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Mark's account most likely is, predominantly comes from eyewitness testimony from Peter himself. And we've been looking at what it means that Jesus is our king and what it looks like for us to follow him in our day by looking at what it looked like to follow him in that day. So we're going to look at the story from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. It'll be familiar at least in its topic, the story of Jesus in Gethsemane. Let's let's read together. I'll read. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for its life-changing power. We confess to you that we often ignore it and, and sometimes even resist it. But here in this moment, we ask you to open our hearts to it that you might speak. You alone know, know what we need to hear Open our minds and hearts to receive what you have to say and help us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a well-known story of Jesus praying in the garden and his disciples falling asleep repeatedly. You've heard that story, you've read that story, you've probably seen that story depicted in uh, different accounts of Jesus' life. Jesus struggling with God in prayer and the disciples struggling to keep their eyes open. How many of you have ever fallen asleep in a time of prayer? Anybody? Yeah? When I was uh, uh, maybe my third or fourth year of marriage, my wife and I, we would pray at night before we would go to bed. And we would get into bed and pray. And she would pray, then I would pray, and we'd go back and forth praying for our children when we had children, uh, just our lives and things that were going on, and we'd take turns. And I, one particular evening, I was really tired. 
And all I remember is it was her turn to pray. And then I, I believe I woke up and I realized it was quiet. And I don't know, did she just finish praying a second ago? Or has it been a half an hour? Have I been snoring? Or is it my turn? Is she just pausing in her own prayer? And so I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and so I said, uh, Lord, and she went, don't even bother. Because <laughs> I had, apparently it was more than a few seconds. So we agreed, if we're going to pray together, let's not pray horizontal. Let's pray at the table together so I don't fall asleep. There's a phrase, you know, that's so common. Maybe you know it, maybe you heard it. Don't sleep on this person or this thing. We say it in the, in the NCAA tournament. Don't sleep on this team. What we mean by that is uh, pay attention. Don't miss how good this is or how important this is or how significant this is. Don't sleep on this person or this thing. Don't sleep on this investment. Don't sleep on this person. Don't sleep on this team. I think you could title this Don't Sleep on Jesus or your wife, for that matter. In Mark 13, verse 36, Jesus says, What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Keep alert. Now he's talking about spiritual alertness. Jesus tells them in verse 38, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. But they don't, and they do. In the passage, Jesus uses the word hour three times. He, he says that he prays that this hour might pass from him. He says to Peter, could you not stay awake for one hour? And then at the end, he says, the hour has come. The Hebrew word for hour is horah. Uh, it literally means, it can, it can mean the, the actual time period of an hour, but most often it means a specific moment, a moment in time, this moment, this hour, divine appointment, a moment with divine purpose. The hour has come. He doesn't mean the next 60 seconds have come. He means the moment of divine purpose of the betrayal of the Son of Man has come. When he says this hour might pass from me, he doesn't mean I hope this, I get through the next 60 seconds, or 60 minutes, excuse me. He means... I hope that, Lord, I want this moment to pass from me. It's too much for me. I want to use this, um, this idea of the hour and talk about three hours or three moments, or four actually, in this passage of Jesus that also apply to us. Within the story, there are several different hours of divine moments. The first is the hour of prayer. The hour of prayer. The center of the whole passage is Jesus praying to his Father. Seeking his Father. We've just finished the Passover meal, to put it in context. They sung a hymn. I've often wondered, what did Jesus' singing voice sound like? We're not told. I bet it was good. A moment ago when I walked in before the service, Sarah was playing on the organ, and Kent and I were standing behind her listening to her play. play. We, we sung just sort of under, loud enough for her to hear the last line of the hymn that she was playing. She turned around and said, oh, I like having voices sing behind me. Most often people hear me sing, they don't say that. My wife, who has perfect pitch, would often sing where I'm supposed to sing, and then like, you know, try to help me. I wonder what Jesus' singing voice was like. We don't know what he sang. Most likely some, Psalm 116 or to 118, which were the psalms you sang historically after the Passover meal for a faithful Jew. Then they go out of the upper room, and they make their way out of the city to the Mount of Olives. We don't know exactly where the upper room was, um, we know roughly, and there's, there's a church, they build a church over everything in Israel, if you've been there you know this, uh, and there's a church that is marks what they believe to be the spot of the upper room, but if you just take the center of the old city as a reference point, it's a little over a mile, a, in a straight line, 
to the Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane. Would have, would have been more than that, winding through narrow city streets and up and down the Kidron Valley. Would have taken somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes to walk that, that route. Let's look at verses 32 to 34 once more in the text. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John were often the three that got to be inside. They, they were the ones at the Mount of Transfiguration. They were the ones that were in there when Jesus raised a little girl from the dead. They got, this, they got an inside look at some things that the other twelve, the other nine, excuse me, didn't often see. He takes them with him. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. So they go out from the, Mount of, from the upper room to the Mount of Olives on this half an hour or so walk. Mark doesn't tell us what they talked about, but John does. If you read John, chapter 13 is the story of the, of the, of the washing of the feet in the, in the Passover, and chapters 14 to 17 is the, is the topics of discussion between Jesus and the disciples as they walked from the upper room to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said things like, I go away to prepare a place for you. He said things like, I'm going to come back and take you with me. He said things like, if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come, for you, come to you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit the Comforter, who will instruct you in everything that I have said. He said things like, the world will, is not worthy of you, and they will reject you. But I'm sending you into the world. He says things like, the harvest is ripe. The fields are ripe under the harvest. I'm sending you in my name. I don't think the disciples had much of a clue what he's talking about on that walk. It would come back to them later. As they walk and Jesus discuss these things. Then they come to the garden. And the events surrounding Jesus' time of prayer in Gethsemane were unique in history shaping. The hour was a unique hour in salvation history. But apparently this was not uncommon for Jesus to go to this place to pray. Luke 22 verse 39 says, As was his custom... And he came and out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. Now you might remember the story of the upper room. That's sort of secretive. Jesus has made plans ahead of time in this room that no one else knows about. He sends two disciples, gives them this sign about a man carrying a jar of water. No one knows where this room is. They wonder, they're asking him, where are we going to have the Passover? Why? Jesus knows this meal is significant, and he, want, he will not let himself be betrayed into the hands of sinful men until he's eaten this meal. So he makes plans without telling the disciples where he's going. But after the meal, he goes where he usually goes, when he's near Jerusalem, to Gethsemane, to pray. Judas knew this. So Jesus is not hiding. He's doing what he always did. It was the usual custom, the usual place for him to go and pray. This is why Judas knew where to find him. You see here an image of the Mount of Olives on the screen. I took this picture standing just, just, just outside the old city wall in Jerusalem, the, the, the Kidron Valley. I'm on the edge of it looking down. Now it's, it's dry and graves there. But you'll see that church there uh, in the middle of the screen is where they, is they built the church over the place of the Garden of Gethsemane. Suppose it, anyway. And you can see there the olive trees around that church, built around olive groves. And then the next picture closer, this is a picture of what some believe was Gethsemane today. Olive trees that they say are over 10,000 years old. 
although it's difficult to know for sure how old they are. But it's entirely possible that there are olive trees that are still there, that were there in the time of Jesus. It wasn't a well-manicured garden in Jesus' day with nice rock paths and, and, and you know, cultured plants. It was a, a grove of olive trees. A shady spot on the side of a hill, hence the name, the Mount of Olives. And Jesus liked to go there, outside the city. And from that perspective, you can turn and look at the old city. You can see the Temple Mount. So imagine Jesus frequently when he's near Jerusalem, going to that place in the shade of an olive tree, sitting and praying, speaking to his Father, looking at the city, knowing someday he'd be there on his last time of prayer in the garden in his earthly life. The word Gethsemane is the Hebrew word get shmanim. It's where we get our, the, the transliteration of an Aramaic word, Gethsemane. Get shmanim means uh, the place, it means the oil or olive press. Literally translates to the place of crushing. Because if you know how they make olive oil now and then, it was crushing the olives underneath the weight of, of stones, large stones, and gathering the oil as it ran down a little trough. In fact, there's, there's a couple of places near there of ancient olive presses where you can go and tour them. Think about that for a minute. The place Jesus prayed and his soul was sorrowful to the point of death and he's overwhelmed, he's feeling weighed down, is actually named the place of crushing. It's precisely what he's, what he's facing. In verse 33, he says he's distressed and troubled. In verse 34, sorrowful even unto death. So his meaning is not that he's sorrowful or overwhelmed at the, at the idea of physical death. It's that his sorrow, he's saying, it's so intense it feels like it might kill me in that moment. Jesus is praying not just because he's in crisis, but because this is what he did. Lived a life of prayer. For many of us, if we pray at all, it's we pray when we need something. When we're facing crisis. Lord, get me out of this. Haven't talked to you in a while, Lord, but if you could help me out here, I promise I'll be more faithful. That's not the prayer of Jesus here. This is a regular pattern of prayer. It brings us to the next hour, the hour of surrender. You know, up to this point in the story, when you read through Mark, Jesus is, it feels like he's not thrown off by anything. Everything's happening according to plan. The upper room is according to plan. Uh, the, 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 he's saying things. The disciples are confused, and it's chaotic to them, but not to Jesus. Everything is proceeding in the triumphal entry, teaching the temple courts, clear, cleansing of the temple. He, all these things he's done intentionally. He knows when his hour is. But in this moment in the garden, doesn't it read like he's, he's caught off guard? Like he's trying to find a way out? It's the first time in the whole narrative where Jesus seems to be like unsure not wanting to go through with it. Something's changed. He's pleading with his heavenly Father here for a way out. Again, let's read verses 35 to 37 of Mark 14. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Simon, Are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? It sounds like Jesus is looking for a way out. Why? Is that true? Well, on one level, I mean, he, he knew he was going to die. 
He said as much to his disciples repeatedly while, while he's with them. The Son of Man must be betrayed. He knows that's going to happen. The Son of Man must be killed by sinful men. It's not like he doesn't know that his point is death. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He understood that his life was moving to his sacrificial death. So I don't think it's suddenly he's all of a sudden wanting a way out from that because he knows that's his purpose. Why would he pray then? If not my will, but your will be done. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. There's something deeper going on here. Something more than the fear of physical pain and physical death. More than just the physical torment of the cross, though it was great. When he says he's distressed and troubled, the, literally the, the way the Greek reads is to say that he's, uh, you, could, you could translate that choked with fear, overcome with horror. Timothy Keller puts it this way, imagine coming around a corner in a dark alley and seeing someone you love most on earth being tortured. Physically tormented and tortured. What would be the emotional reaction? Shock? Horror? Sickened feeling? Do anything to stop it? Jesus, in the garden, is getting a taste of what's to come. Not the physical torment of the cross, but the spiritual torment. The weight of it all. The judgment of God. I think the key to understanding it is this phrase, the cup. If possible, let take this cup from me. What cup? You might remember when James and John come to him and say, we want to sit at your right and your left. And Jesus, what does he say? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they go, oh, oh yeah, sure. Thinking it's Kool-Aid or something. Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. This cup the cup in the Old Testament is a metaphor. Sometimes for the blessing of God, my cup overflows in Psalm 23, but often for the judgment or wrath of God poured out on disobedience and sin. That's the cup Jesus is, is getting a foretaste of in the garden. The cup of the wrath of God poured out on, in judgment for sin. Now we say that, and that sounds theological, and you probably nod your head, yeah, yeah, I get that. But think about that. The compounding effect of every hateful thought, word, and deed, every abuse of a child, every abuse of a woman at the hand of a man, every betrayal, every act of unfaithfulness, every injustice, every, every war crime. I mean, it's, it's hard to even, it's impossible, quite frankly, to get your mind around. Every terrible, awful, unspeakable thing ever done or ever will be done. Jesus in the garden is just getting a taste and he staggers a bit. Lord, if it's possible, is there some other way? It's not the physical pain. It's the weight of our sin. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, a passage that's familiar to us. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin. It does not mean that Jesus sinned. He who was sinless took on, in that sense, became the sin of the world laid on him. In the garden, Jesus began to feel it. 
You know, I think we think of the suffering of Jesus beginning at the cross, the, the arrest, the beating at Caiaphas' courtyard, the beating by the Roman guards before Pilate, flogging, scourging, and of course the crucifixion. I think his suffering begins here. Where Isaiah 53, verses 11 through 12, tell us this, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This bearing of sin and anguish of soul and pouring out his soul into death begins in the garden, not the cross. It finishes at the cross, but it begins here. You know, there are those, I think, who object to the idea of God's wrath. How can a loving God be wrathful? I don't get it. How, how do a God of love be angry? I don't like this idea of God of wrath. I, I want a God of love and grace and kindness to all mankind. And this idea of wrath, that's a, that's a bloodthirsty human invention of a God who demands sacrifice and is angry. I've heard this objection many times. I felt it personally. It might not surprise you that C.S. Lewis has something good to say about this. In his book, Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer, there is no actual Malcolm. I mean, there are Malcolms, but he's writing imaginary letters on one side, so you only read one side of a conversation he's having in his own soul with God. He invents this character, Malcolm, about the mysteries of prayer. And Malcolm is pushing back on the idea of God being angry. And and, um, Lewis says this, I fully grant you that wrath can can be attributed to God only by analogy. The situation of the penitent before God isn't, but is somehow like, that of one appearing before a just, justly angered sovereign, lover, father, master, or teacher. But what more can we know about it than just this likeness? Trying to get in behind the analogy, you go further and fare worse. You suggest that what is traditionally regarded as our experience of God's anger would be more helpfully regarded as what inevitably happens to us if we behave inappropriately towards a reality of immense power. As you say, the live wire doesn't feel angry with us, but if we blunder against it, we get a shock. Do you understand what he's saying? Don't think of God as angry. Think of it as like electricity. If you violate the law, you get a shock. Electricity's not angry with you, it's just doing what it does. Here's what Lewis says. My dear Malcolm, why do you suppose that you have gained, what do you suppose you have gained by substituting the image of a live wire for that of angered majesty? You have shut us all up in despair. For the angry can forgive. Electricity cannot. And you give as your reason that even by analogy the sort of pardon which arises because a fit of temper is spent cannot worthily be attributed to God nor gratefully accepted by man. But the belittling belittling words fit of temper are your own choice. Think of the fullest reconciliation between mortals. Is it cool disapproval coolly assuaged? Is the culprit let down lightly in view of extenuating circumstances? Was peace restored by a moral lecture? Was the offense said not to matter? Was it hushed up or passed over? William Blake knew better. I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath. My wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I fed my wrath. My wrath did grow. He goes on. Basically, Lewis's point is this. He says later in this same letter to Malcolm, he says, you cannot have a God of love unless you also have a God of wrath anger, 
justice and judgment. Do you want a God who is not angered at injustice? How could you worship a God who does, does, does not wrathful at evil and oppression? Do you want a God who just sweeps that stuff under the rug, winks at it, and says, you know, everybody's okay? No, there's injustice and evil and wrong in the world, and God sees, and God knows, and God is angry, and God will judge. It's stored up in a cup, and it's going to be poured out. The only question is on who? Jesus sees it. And on one level in his humanity, I think in the garden, we see the clearest picture of the divinity and the humanity of Jesus interplaying together. In his humanity, he staggers and says, let this cup pass from me. In his divinity, he says, not my will, but your will be done. Meaning, on one level, I desire not to have to go through it. But on the deeper level, I don't desire to be spared. I desire your will so that my children, you and I, might be spared. We celebrate outrage and anger in our culture today. It's okay to be outraged on Twitter or social media or angry at injustice. It's accepted, praised even. But somehow we don't want God to be angry or outraged at injustice. We don't like that idea. But he is. Praise God that he is. Notice in verse 36, Jesus uses the term Abba to refer to his father. Some of you will know that that's the term of endearment for Jewish children to their father. Something akin to daddy although different. I remember when my wife and I traveled to Israel, we were, our first night stayed in Tel Aviv in a hotel. We went for a walk along the Mediterranean, on the shore of the Mediterranean, and little kids were playing on the beach. I was full of jet lag. It was late afternoon, and I'm walking on the beach, and I could hear these kids yelling, Abba, 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 to their dad, wanting to come and play with them. And I thought of this passage. I thought about Romans 8, where we're told that the Spirit helps us cry, Abba, Father. They're still saying it. Jesus speaks to his heavenly Father and calls him Abba, Think about that for a minute. In his darkest hour, when his soul is overwhelmed to the point of death, when he's feeling crushed, he still speaks to his father. He still addresses him as a loving, kind, and good father. He could have aborted the mission at any moment, but he doesn't. In fact, his struggle in prayer is not... Jeez, I remember when Brian and Coffee and I were, and, and our wives, we were in Israel, we were at Caiaphas' house, looking down through this chamber in the rock of his, the floor of his home to what may have been an interrogation chamber, and there were six men from Texas in their hats and boots and buckles down there, and they were singing the song, He Could Have Called 10,000 Angels, with their Texan voices coming up through the stone. The acoustics were amazing. I was weeping at these Texan men singing that song. I think about that. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. He could have aborted the whole mission, wiped out his enemies. That doesn't even occur to him. He never says, I'm going to do this. He never questions, God, your will's not good. God I, God, I think you're wrong about this. He just says, is there another way? He trusts his Father in heaven, even when his emotions would lead him not to. Boy, how, how we need that today. He trusts the will of his Father in heaven, even when his emotional state would lead him not to. How often I fail at that. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm dictated by my feelings or emotions in the moment. Not by a rock-solid belief and anchor and trust and belief in the goodness of God and his will, even when it doesn't feel like it. We pray 
not to conform God to our will, but to be conformed to his. It's astounding to think that when Jesus felt furthest from God, he was actually closest to him. You know, when we're in great pain or fear, uh, I think the temptation is, you've heard this, this phrase, we can't think straight. That's not the case for Jesus. He's not irrational. He doesn't question the goodness of God. But he doesn't suppress his emotions either. He does voice them. There's a difference between complaining about God and complaining to God, isn't there? Next, the hour of temptation. Jesus wasn't hiding in Gethsemane. He knew he'd be found by those who were looking for him intentionally. He knew the hour had come. But the hour of prayer and surrender for Jesus is simultaneously a different hour for the disciples. It's their hour of temptation. Jesus says as much, right? Watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. Let's look at verses 38 to 40 once more. And I have put my glasses somewhere. Verses 38 to 40. Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again it went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. It says he went again and prayed the same words. You know, in Greek it's the, it's the, uh, it's the perfect tense, which imp- appears to imply that Jesus didn't just pray once, Lord, not my will, but your will. I think he prayed over and over and over again for hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, but not my will, your will. Over again he prayed that, repeatedly. Jesus told his disciples they would all fall away in verse 27 of chapter 14. They all said, no, no, we won't. And Peter was the boldest of all. They all made bold promises of faithfulness to Jesus. And Jesus is telling them, and I think he's telling us, that the key to spiritual strength is not bold promises or good intentions. That's been my life too often. Big promises, good intentions. I meant well. The key to spiritual strength and faithfulness is prayer. The strongest place is on your knees with the Father. That's your strongest posture. There's a striking contrast between the strength of Jesus, which looks like weakness, doesn't it? He's trembling under the, of what's, under the, 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 the knowledge of what's coming. He's sorrowful. He's overwhelmed. He appears weak. And the disciples, who are just taking naps, oblivious, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, the Apostle Paul says his power is made perfect in weakness. When he pleads with God to take away the thorn in his flesh, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, so I will gladly boast all the more in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. The power of Christ can't rest on somebody who thinks they're strong, who thinks they have it all together, who thinks they know what to do. The power of Christ rests on us when we're broken, when we're humbled, on our knees, begging for his presence and grace. You know, if you think about it, Judas betraying Jesus, Peter denying Jesus, the disciples falling away from Jesus, Caiaphas arresting Jesus, the trial in Caiaphas' court, the beatings, the the trial before Pilate, the flogging, all of that paled in comparison to what Psalm 22 says when Jesus quoted on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he doesn't want to face. That's what he's wrestling with and trying to surrender. And the disciples, 
Their hour is to watch and pray. This brings us lastly to the hour of victory. Now that may sound strange to you, the hour of victory. Let's read how the passage ends. Verses 41 to 42. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed to the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It doesn't exactly sound like victory, does it? They're still sleeping. The betrayer's at hand. He's about to be arrested. And a mockery of a trial before Caiaphas and then Pilate. I mean, how is that victory? I'm going to quote to you something from uh, J.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. You probably wonder, how does that apply to, to Mark 14? It does, I think. Uh, it was at this point, Bilbo stopped. Going on from there was the bravest thing he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterward were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in wait. Let's talk about when he goes into the mountain to, to, to deal with Smog the dragon. Tolkien is um, veiling something here. Bilbo the Hobbit is a weak creature. Doesn't look like much. And he he says that all the great things that come afterwards, the victory that will come afterwards, was really fought in the tunnel with the decision to go. The bravest thing he ever did was to actually go ahead. I I think the victory of the cross and, and Resurrection Sunday, which I can't wait to celebrate together, is one in the garden. The decision to surrender, the decision to go, rise, the hour has come. Look, the betrayer is here. It's enough. The time has come. I'm ready to face it. In Luke 22, I won't get into reading it, we don't have time, but Luke 22's account of this very same story. It says that Jesus is praying and it sweats like drops of blood. You remember this? Which is actually a medical condition. And an angel comes and strengthens him, we're told. So Jesus prays with sweat like drops of blood, and an angel comes and strengthens him. You'd think the next verse was, he gets up and goes confidently to, the, to his death. The next verse is, and being in anguish, he prayed all the more earnestly. He's strengthened to keep praying, to keep surrendering. The victory of the cross, the defeat of sin and death, that battle was actually won by Jesus on his knees in the garden when he surrendered to the will of the Father. That's why I think we can say it's the hour of victory. Now, because of God's grace, none of us will face the horrors of the cross. That battle has already won. It is finished. But every one of us who follows Jesus has our hour of prayer, our hour of surrender, our hour of temptation. Every one of us can learn from him in that it is a regular pattern to be with the Father in prayer. So when that hour comes, you're ready. You're undergirded by a life of prayer, seeking strength from him. His power be made perfect in your weakness. You know, Jesus is the one who said time and time again to his disciples, come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. He's the one who had it together, and in this moment he doesn't. At least he doesn't appear to. He needs the strength of his friends who fail him. He seeks the strength of his Father who does not. That battle that was won is our salvation, is our hope. And that's why we can say, even in the bleakest hour, this story that ends with the betrayer coming is a story of victory. It's a story of hope.
It's the story of the gospel. I pray that in this, 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 this morning and the weeks leading up to Easter,